My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. All right, in three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, two men who couldn't come from more different worlds. The first, born in Mosul, Iraq, someone who watched his country be torn apart from the inside out. He's not only a veteran of the Iraqi army, but also the only interpreter to ever receive the Navy SEAL Trident. His quick thinking, his ability to read a room and the intentions of the people in it, and his willingness to push himself further and faster than any other contracted worker made him a huge asset to the U.S. soldiers and special operators that he worked with. This man not only risked everything to make the country of Iraq a better place for future generations, but now a citizen of the United States is training future warfighters in cultural affairs in order to make them a more rounded warrior. The second, a retired Command Master Chief Navy SEAL who comes from a punk rock background and who in his 27 years of service was assigned to SEAL Teams 1, 3, 7, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, Naval Special Warfare Command, and the Naval Special Warfare Group 1. This guest has numerous deployments all over the globe in support of U.S. operations to include the Middle East, where he met tonight's other guest while working in Baghdad as the senior enlisted advisor to an 80-man task force. This guest was instrumental in the efforts to get not only his friend and teammate, but also his entire family to the United States, where they could finally live the life that they had always dreamed of living. This story could not have more action, plot twists, and cast of characters if it was a best-selling thriller novel. It's my pleasure to introduce Codename Johnny Walker and Jason Tushin. What's going on, guys? What's happening? How you doing? I am fantastic. Johnny, how are you? Living the dream, man. Thanks for having us, man. Yeah, I'm so glad you both are here. Uh, I'm so excited to talk about this book. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, and, and we got to get right into it. Johnny, I want to start with you, because as I said in the opening, you guys couldn't come from more different backgrounds. Uh, let's talk about your growing up, the way you looked at life, the way you looked at culture, and then Jason, we're going to switch over to you when he's done. Sounds good. Okay, so born and raised in uh, Mosul, north of Iraq, uh, born in 1964. And when I raised kind of troubled child-ish, and always I have my slingshot with me, attacking another neighbors and bring some issue to my family. And my family kind of, they almost done with me. <laughs> And they figure out if they send me to the basketball with my cousin, who was playing Iraqi national team at that time, maybe this is kind of temporary solution or something until they figure out something. So I went with my cousin, started playing basketball. I didn't understand what the fuck is going on with this game. 
But day after day, I found myself through this game, and I feel a love in this game. And while playing basketball, it looks like there is chain. If you play basketball, you have to watch Harlem team. If you watch Harlem team, you have to watch cowboy movies, John Wayne. John Wayne, you have to listen to country music, Kenny Rogers, and all those small details in my, my mind build a small dream that one day I will live in America, land of freedom. If I have only one day in my life, I will, I will live there. And there is no question about that. But the dream different than reality. In 1980, Saddam or Khomeini, whatever, one of them, he made the war between two countries. Million innocent people got killed. And I remember the first dead body I saw came to my city, Mosul. The, the military, Iraqi military police, they bring the dead body and they ask the family to give them the price of the round that killed their son because their son ran away from the front line and they captured him at the back, back lines. So they killed him. The Iraqi army, Iraqi military police, killed Iraqi soldier because he's scared about his life or he have no enough for training, whatever, any reason. And from that time, it's like, fuck, this country is not going to anywhere. Anyway, 1988, war is done between Iraq and Iran. And you can see a lot of, in every two, three families, you will find someone got killed or someone got injured. And this is kind of leave big uh, black hole memories in, uh, in the Iraqi people. In 1990, Iraq, again, Saddam's, not Iraqi, uh, have another adventure by invade Kuwait. So we woke up in the morning and Kuwait became the 18 province or uh, city belonged to Iraq. And another sign, this is not good. And after that, you know, all the United Nations kick Iraq, Saddam, I don't want to use Iraq, Iraqi people, because they forced to do that. So they kick Saddam's regime from Kuwait, and we have sanction from 1991 until 2003. And the one who's paid the price is not the government. They eat meat every day, red, white meat, name it. And Iraqi people, they struggle starving for food until 2003. And at that time, in 1991, I get married to love of my life, Beda. And we start having kids and kind of focusing in my family. You know, when you are in survive mode, you forget all the environment. You just focus in what you have and how you can take him to the next side of the river. So anyway, in 2003, American forces came liberate Iraq. I don't want to use invade because they give us hope. And invader, they never give, give hope. 
uh, they give give us hope. Not only me. I don't want to be selfish because I am in the United States now. Now, no. To every Iraqi person, when the American forces came, he have hope with the American flag. And this is where it looks like my dream come to me free. I will do everything I can to work with them. I don't know to do whatever just to be with them with the Americans. It's interesting when you say that when you when you talk about growing up there. Now you come from a family that you know you you were respected there. Your family was respected there, but you always as a kid wanted to push like the limits. You went into areas that you didn't live in just to show that you could go in there. Do you think part of that spirit, Johnny, is what made you excel so much when you helped out uh, during this war? I don't know. I mean, maybe everyone in his life, one small step changed everything in his life. Like for me, the basketball is the open the gate of the freedom to me to open my eyes in American culture. And this is where build smaller dream in my mind and also the challenge. And honestly, like when I work with American forces, I, I work with them by an accident. I didn't work by any challenge or anything. And I can, I can tell you the story after maybe, uh, to present himself. But my point is, if you have a dream and you believe in your dream, no matter how long it's gonna take you, if you believe it like 100%, that dream will come to you somehow. But you have to have the first smallest step to build it in your mind. And I think this is what happened with me. I think so too. Touche, going to you and, and growing up, uh, you had not necessarily this plan in place. You had some other things that you were thinking about possibly in your future. Uh, you were a chef. Uh, you were in a punk rock band and played guitar. You had an idea, I heard, that that you always wanted to be in the military at some point. But yeah. there was a lot of different directions you were going in. Your compass was kind of spinning in all different directions. So let's talk about growing up, how you had that idea, because I really want to point out about the Marine Corps and stuff, how you had enlisted with them, but that didn't work out. So let's talk about how you grew up and came into the world you are, because you stayed around for an extremely long time in that world. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, like Johnny, I was a bit of a rebel growing up, so, uh, you know, if, if all the sheep were running to the right, I'd go to the left. And uh, so I just marked the beat of my own drum. Uh, I think that's why, you know, the first time, uh, I think I was in seventh grade, I heard uh, the Clash song, Cheap. And, uh, okay, from that point on, I was into punk rock. Uh, and, and that was, I think that opened my mind a lot uh, to different personalities and people. And, uh, yeah, it just made me question everything. Like, I mean, to this day, you know, question everything you're told, uh, and, and come up with your own answer. Uh, so that was certainly my mindset growing up. Uh, yeah. And then in high school, uh, really wasn't going anywhere. I didn't want to go to school. That just, that to me seemed too cookie cutter. Like, Oh, okay. Graduate high school, go to college, get a degree, then spend the rest of your life working <laughs> through 65. I was like, fuck that. Uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, you know, so I was like, well, I'll join the Marine Corps for four years. And some dude from school was like, hey, you want to join? I'm like, yeah, why not? 
Uh, yeah, and then the night before I was supposed to go to boot camp, I got completely liquored up and uh, broke my hand. And they're like, yeah, thanks. Don't call us. We'll call you. And I'm like, ah, fair enough. So then I was really like, okay, what am I going to do? And uh, yeah, I was still playing in the punker band. And uh, yeah, then I ended up, uh, I did try to go to school for a year at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And that, that bored me to tears. It was like, yeah, okay, I can, don't have to do bare bones. I can do bare bones minimum, get passing grades. And, you know, I, I did take classes that I, you know, would find interesting, uh, you know, for the undergrad. Like I, I took a class on, uh, you know, an, an anthology of the Western Great Lakes American Indians and learned about, you know, <laughs> ethnobotany and how to make a wigwam and like shit like that was cool. But uh, it doesn't like really to move towards a degree necessarily. No, not at all. And yeah. uh, when I had to start taking English and math, I was like, nah, I'm cool. And so I quit. And, uh, you know, but I'm, I was brought up with a work ethic. Like, if you're not doing, you're always doing something. And uh, so I got through the want ads and, oh, Benny Hanna's. Yeah, that sounds cool. They're looking for bus boys, you know, whopping $4 an hour. And, uh, I was like, yeah, I like that restaurant. So I went over there and got a job. And within like two weeks, the uh, manager was like, hey, busboy son, you know, you want to be a chef? I'm like, hell yeah. They wanted to have a white guy. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was like, I was the token cracker. And uh, so I, I started training as a chef there. And uh, the restaurant in Milwaukee shut down and they asked me if I wanted to stay with it. And I said, yeah, why not? I'm not really doing anything. So I moved to Chicago. Uh, a suburb of Chicago, Lombard, Illinois, and worked for the head head chef uh, for all the restaurants down there. And that was really cool. It was fun. But, like, it was, uh, you know, I look back at that time, though, and, you know, I was the only native English speaker in the whole restaurant. And so I was, you know, the most minority you could be. And it was eye-opening, you know. It was, uh, you certainly experience, uh, there's different forms of racism, I guess. You know, it's just not white people being assholes. It's uh, every culture can do that. Uh, and so that was very eye opening, but it also really opened my aperture to different cultures and uh, appreciating what they have, you know, because because I was such an anomaly, uh, like the Thai guys and gals would take me out to dinner in, at the, in the local Thai district in Chicago. The Japanese would do the same thing. The Mexican guys would or the Ecuadorians. And it, it was really it was a really cool experience. I mean, but uh, it was lonely as shit, man, like living in Chicago with, uh, you know, the girl I was dating at the time was in Chicago. And then as soon as I got down there, she moved to Paris. I'm like, fuck. Uh, so I, I, you know, held out as long as I could. And, uh, August of, uh, oh God, 1990, I, uh, quit Benihana's, uh, moved to Paris until I ran out of money and came home. And, uh, during that time frame, Saddam invaded Kuwait. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll stay in Paris till I'm out of money and, uh, flew back home and joined the Navy. And, uh, yeah. So, Here's the interesting part to me. When you say you, you were kind of a free spirit and you said that you, at that moment, you decided question everything, make your decision. That yeah. seems kind of a problem to be in the military, to be in as strict as environment as you're in. And then not only that, but to be a command master chief, when you look back on it, did you want people that questioned everything around you? It's such a weird totally. thing to me to hear you say that. So can you can you explain that a little bit? Because I think it's really fascinating how you describe that. Yeah, I, I think it actually. So you get to boot camp, right? And you're, you're, you're just, just supposed to be a robot. 
And, you know, I, I personally felt because I had questioned everything, uh, like I understood because you question things, I think you understand the purpose of what uh, something is. So I understood the purpose of boot camp and why you had to, uh, why they did things a certain way. And so I accepted that, right? It, becoming, going in the Navy and becoming a SEAL was something that I wanted to do. So this was the, one of the prices of admission to get into the teams. And I understood the reasoning behind the monotony of boot camp. Uh, I understood the reasoning for just the brutal grind at buds and, and yeah. And then you get to the teams and one of my first experiences uh, or my first observations in the SEAL teams was, you know, I got out of a SQT at the time or STT, they called it uh, and jumped into, got put into my first platoon and the whole platoon, 16 guys are sitting around the platoon space and I was like, wow, man, like you can question, you can ask the question why, Hey, this is what we're going to do. The officer, the OIC would go, Hey, this is what we're doing. And somebody would chime in and go, why the hell are we doing that? And, and it wasn't to be combative. It was just to, to understand why, you know, we were asking us to do this. And if he, if the OIC or whomever was giving that active didn't have a good answer to why, uh, then you know, I think they were self-aware. The emotional intelligence was high enough that they could uh, maybe reassess what it was they're asking us to do. So, like, in a leadership role, I, I totally encourage people to challenge assumptions and and ask the question why, because it's a, it's a set of checks and balances. You know, if, if I can't explain why, I probably shouldn't be asking you to do that. Uh, now, sometimes you can't help it. I mean, orders are orders within a certain at a certain point, but... Hey, this is what we're doing. Well, why are we doing it that? Or why don't we do it this way? And then you can have a, a thought-provoking discussion with the group, and it becomes a, a, a two-way learning. Like, I'm learning. They're learning. You have these discussions. Uh, you know, that's what mentorship should be, you know, right? You, you, the mentor's learning as much as the mentee. So, yeah, I had absolutely no no problem with people. I mean, sometimes I did, you know. You're going to be yeah. – uh, <laughs> and, and but you would know it when you cross that line with me. Right. That's pretty easy going, but uh, – you know, it's I, I love it when people ask why, you know, and, the, and the, my experience with the SEAL teams was, I mean, they'll eat a like a stinky shit sandwich if you explain why and how it fits into a bigger picture and how it's going to improve, you know, the, the guys, uh, the opportunities for the guys coming behind you or how it's going to protect the nation or help the country or country acts, you know, that you're working in. You know, if you, if you understand it, we're not SEAL teams don't you don't. And no business does either, for that matter. You don't go out of your way to hire dummies, right? You try to screen for and select. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think some people might argue with that, that, that you know. <laughs> I, and, and the reason I say that is jokingly, but if you look at it, there, there are some companies that want, like we talked about in the very beginning, mindless robots doing yeah. whatever they're told to do. No, that's true. I think if you want to be a high-performing organization, whether in the private sector or the public, uh, you are going to screen for and select the best talent. And whether they're the most junior person or not, they have value to the team. And, and I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear their input. I want to see a different perspective. Like the, my biggest fear is groupthink. You know, like I don't, want, I don't want a bunch of lemmings. I don't want a bunch of people who just nod their head north and south and go, yeah, that's what we're going to do. I want, to, I want people who are going to think critically, challenge assumptions, maybe and bring a fresh perspective to what we're doing. 
You know, I, that drives me nuts. Like we always do it that way. Well, that doesn't mean it's right. You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, conversely, Johnny, when you talk about your first military experience and you go in and you just go into a room and uh, an officer waves his hand and you go over here and you do this and you do this. It's very different from how Jason is explaining it. Let's talk about you and what you learned in that military experience, because overall in the book, it doesn't seem like it made that much of a difference in your future in how you thought, because it was just something that you kind of had to do and get through. To give better description of most of the Middle East Army situation, uh, most of the country uh, invaded by uh, British and French. And the British, they don't value the sergeant. And they build sheep. And the officer, he's the only leader, the only one who's thinking all these kind of things. So Iraqi army, is building in sheep culture, not in leader culture as Tushin mentioned. There is discipline, but there is not discipline of the belief of the agenda. There is discipline of the fear of the punishment. And this is where you build army can run away in the first face off. And the question if you go back to the questioning, as Tusha mentioned, uh, people who question a lot, not in nerd, stupid fucking way, just to prove himself. No, but just like curious, he want to fucking find what the fuck is going on, you know? Especially in our business, life and death, uh, question is the other face of leaders. And Navy SEAL build leaders more than sheep. That's why everyone of the team member on Navy SEAL, he can build his own decision and he can stop all the convoy because each one of them is leader. And it's funny things like when I work with SEALs, I went to the meeting, I have no fucking clue what the fuck is going on. They start. Johnny, I hope you didn't tell them that when you went in the meeting. No, I told them something else. I told them <laughs> because I don't have that language. Imagine my language now. Right. And my language is 2003. When I says water, I say water. <laughs> and if I want to explain thief, I have to do the body language things. So anyway, so I told him the first meeting, I told him, they said, uh, they call me Walker. Do you understand what's going on? I told him only one thing. I know the jackpot name, Abdullah. Other things, I have no idea what's going on. So, so when I when I went to the SEALs community, it's it surprised me. And it's like, what the fuck I'm going I'm going for? Long beard, different weapon, no rank, no sir. F word 24 hours, seven days a week, and we drink. It's like, fuck, that's fucking cool, man. But I just want to understand that culture. And I knew it from day one. Like when I work with military police, if we go back a little bit, 
awesome, amazing guys. I love it. I love them. Until now, they are my brothers. But our our direction of the job is training Iraqi police and find some thugs. But when right. I move to the SEALs, our job is different. And honestly, it makes me feel, on personal level, make me fucking feel shame. Because we capture bad guys in my city, the city I born and raised, and we found C4, RBG, 155 uh, millimeter round in my city, and they have no idea. And those guys, they came 1,000 miles, and they know all these details. And this is kind of a trick that challenge inside me, which is I have to be the best of my kind so I can survive with them. It's look like fucking wolves, man. Wild wolves. If you cannot be fucking mean, badass, fucking use F, drink Johnny Walker, you will be fucked. Okay. Okay, but let's go back to the military police, like you said. That's the interesting part, is that when you went with the military police, you almost had that swagger that you did when you went over to the SEALs. You pushed the limits of what you could do with those military police. You pushed yourself very hard in order to interrogate the people that were there to know what you were doing on the ground. So don't you think that kind of was always there? These guys just afforded you the opportunity to let that kind of flag fly? I think it's inside me because, look, it's different culture. I mean, if I came to Texas right now, where you at now, and we go to some ghetto places, you can tell me, Johnny, you need to fucking watch this and that. You know what I mean? Same thing with my city. Those people, they don't know the culture. And I know. And I remember one of the mission, uh, we supposedly to have two line going to the all down in, on the city. We cannot use Humvees. We have to walk. And the plan is, the front door is going to head by military police, only Americans, and the back house of the target uh, is going to be me leading the Iraqi police. And I am a translator. I have no rank. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so we went to the back door, and I asked the owner of the house, is like, hey, can, can we just, like, climb to the house next to... He says, no, 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 you have to have order from the court. It's like, fuck you. So I just like fucking jump to the roof <laughs> because I know the people, my people, and include myself, we sleep at the roof at the summertime. And I went to the roof and I found someone laying down in the bed. So I wake him up and I put my hand underneath his pillow because this is where we hide our pistol. And I found pistol and I take it from him. When I wake him up, I still remember his name, Rod. I told him, wake up, wake up. He says, what's going on? I told him, hey, we have some information about you. What's your name, sorry? And he says, Rod. So this is the jackpot. I told him, we have some false information that's you killing people, bullshit. So we're just going to take you with us to the police station. few questions. That's it. So while I'm talking to him, I hear like, uh, gunfire and everyone says let's go back let's go back it's like fuck they left me behind the American police and the Iraqi police they don't know I am in the roof you know what I mean 
So I told the guy, I told him, buddy, there is nothing personal between me and you. He says, what do you mean? I told him, I'm just going to push you. From the- <laughs> so I, I mean, because if I walk back, it's going to take me at least 40 minutes to reach to the main street. And he know more than, better than me those alleys. So if you have a pistol, that means you have AK inside the house. So a survivor's kill. It's going to be his life or mine, you know? I don't give a shit if he is good or bad, but in that situation, he's fucking bad. So I push him from the roof, and they head back to the police station. So this is kind of the police, Iraqi police mentality and military police mentality. And we, we did a lot of, like, crazy mission, and I think the SEALs, they hear about me. Well, and not only that, you heard that that guy, uh, later on you had heard that he probably broke his arm when you pushed him out of that window. No, he had, like, he came to the police station. To complain on you, right? Yeah, and he had, like, a plastic bag for his, oh, and his stomach and broken arms. And when he saw me, he's like, get panic. He just, he- like point to me and start like shaking and screaming. All right. And so mm-hmm. asked me what's going on. I told him, I think he's like crazy or something. <laughs> All right. So speaking of that, when you said a pistol, you knew he had an AK in the house, Jason, this question is going to be to you too. Now, Johnny, you mentioned numerous times in the book, you weren't supposed to carry a weapon on you, but you did carry a weapon on you. You carried, uh, you had a, a, a couple different weapons. Um, first off, What's your thinking behind that? Because this could ruin everything. This could get you kicked out of what you're doing, you know, go back to to living how you were. So your thoughts on it. And then, Jason, I don't know if you knew at the time or I I just kind of want your thoughts on maybe back then and now that you have kind of that 30,000 feet perspective on it. So, Johnny, go ahead with carrying the weapons and then, Jason, if you'll fill in behind him. I mean, if you look at it in, 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 in life and death, with savage enemy, if you can uh, follow the rules, you will be fucked. You know what I mean? Like we doing fucking CTR, we going to the, before we hit the target, we go and film the house, uh, confirm the location, look at it with civilian cars and civilian clothes. And I remember the first one who was giving me weapon, pistol, taco. And he says, and his fucking nervous talk. Keep this fucking pistol, but if I sh- if I saw you point the pistol in one of my guys, I will kill you. <laughs> like, why you fucking give me the fucking pistol? So anyway, so it's like you go into to war and you don't have weapon, and I don't think this is gonna be fair. But this is not came from oh Johnny Walker. He came with us. Let's give him pistol. No, it came by building trust. I remember Calvin Spencer. He's he's retired now. He's the weirdo motherfucker guy in all the SEAL community. He don't trust anyone. He don't trust anyone. I mean, his team, he don't trust other guys from other teams. Too she know. Calvin Spencer, he trusts me. And this is kind of like big deal in the SEAL community. 
And this has happened after I uh, saved one of the guys, he got injured. And without knowing any technique of the seals or anything, I just did as a human uh, reaction to other human need help. Uh, we have a sniper mission, we had the target, uh, supposedly quiet, and we just, the, the guys inside the house, I think they are Qaeda ambush or something. They just open fire on us. Uh, they just like fucking sit and I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I saw the guy, he, his name, Adam. I remember his name. Uh, he got head in his hand and without thinking, I just went to him and while they sh shoot between us and them and pull the guy. And I remember I pulled him out and I told the uh, fucking, with my awesome beginner language in that time, I told uh, the army guy, hey, shoot those motherfuckers. He said, they didn't shoot me. I said, fuck, what the fuck is going on? This American culture, I'm not good with it. <laughs> so anyway, after that, this is kind of became a huge in SEALs community to move my level of trust and proving myself every day, every day until I reach to the level I carry any weapon I want and body armor, night vision, pistol. But guess what? The fucking night vision, helmet, I hate. The body armor, I hate. The weapon, I hate. We have heavy accident. The night vision broke my teeth. The, the body armor, broke my shoulder and the weapon broke my ribs. Never saved my fucking life. Is <laughs> give me some fucking bad injured. So, so, so this is I need to trust. Absolutely. Tush, what what do you think about that? Well, when you hear how he explains it and and I'm sure you guys have talked about it since then, but kind of your thoughts back then and then now that you have this perspective on it. Yeah, I, I mean I, I understand having these blanket policies, but to me, it's just a point of departure, right? It, it drove, it would drive me nuts when like some leader who is not going out in the field is not going out night after night with these guys and uh, going, well, you can't, they can't have a gun. It's like, well, what the fuck, man? It's like, we're in a war zone. Everybody's got the inherent right to self-defense. And you're just like, ah, this guy, you know, he can't have a gun. It's like, he's fighting side by side with us. He has been every night. It's that to me is ignorant. And uh, so, okay, shame on me, but, uh, you know, so we, we, I'd use another rubric like, oh, it's the shoot dogs. And, uh, you know, Johnny had that suppressed uh, MP5 SD, which is nice. But, uh, you know, and it was just like, it, it was just stupid, you know, like, hey, give me some credit. Give the teams some credit. Give, you know, if, if like Spencer is going, hey, yeah, I trust Johnny. He needs a gun then that should be good enough for any leader. Uh, now, there's certainly other interpreters I would not give a gun to. Uh, they, they proved uh, not reliable in higher stress, or they, or they had vendettas that were, uh, you know, uh, you know pre-regime change, if you will, that they, you know, and, and they would lash out. And, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, you're not going to get a gun. Or if you're going to take one, it's not one of ours, and it's not something, you know, I'm going to know about. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, to me, it's all like Johnny said, it's all about trust. And he, he proved himself night after night after night. And, uh, you know, we're going out in gnarly areas. It's like, well, really? You can't, this guy can't be armed. He's, he's saving lives. He's, he's right alongside us, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, I mean, you'll give, you'll arm the Iraqi police to the teeth and half of them are, you know, corrupt or, uh, either part of a Shia militia or Al Qaeda or whatever. And, uh, but you know, this interpreter can't have a gun. That's nuts. Johnny, I want to talk to you. I want to go back a little bit and I want to talk about your brother um, and and the level that you have put into, because we're talking about trust and we're talking about going out every night and proving themselves over and over again. You lost family members um, doing the stuff that you did. And I could tell when I read it in the book that you, um, there's still some question in your mind because people had said to you, that it wasn't because of him, it was because of you. You had heard all different kinds of stories of why your brother was killed. Can we talk about how that was set up, how it went down, and then your thoughts on it? Um, because it was one of the most visceral parts of the book. I mean, it was very much written in a different way than the rest of the book was. There was a lot of feeling there. So can we talk about that? And when you look back on it now from where you're at, um, your thoughts on it? It's a hard subject to talk about it. For my my belief, freedom needs only one price, is blood. And I accept it to myself. But I am so selfish to accept it for others, which is one of them, he's my brother. And, and the, the sad things in the story, I mean, no matter how, what the reason he's killed because of me, because he killed in 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 crowd way coward way like those three guys they are fucking pussy absolutely give them chance to defend himself i'm not i'm not gonna say i'm gonna live with this guilt but i miss him maybe there is some staff if i did it in that time i will save his life but what is done is done and like i told you I want to be selfish. I want to accept the sacrifice of myself. I don't want to accept it to my brother or my other brothers or my family members. But this is the freedom we're looking for. You know what I mean? Now what I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking he's in, in the other place. And, and I, think, I think his death is part of the solution, is not part of the issue. When he died, he finished a lot of stress because after he died, there is a lot of bad, bad things happening in Mosul. And if he is still alive, maybe Qaeda or the militia, they can torture him. Maybe they can kill his family. So I accept the surprise. Again, I am selfish. I don't want to accept it to my brother, but I have no option. I have to accept it and live with it. Yeah. And, and the whole thing to me, why it stood out so much to me, because if you go back even further in your life and you go to your brother Ali, uh, there was that too. So you've had so much loss in your life and you've seen the place that you love, the place that you called your home for three quarters of the book, you saw it destroyed all around you. So I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I, I wanted to ask you about that because it really struck me when you said that 
in a roundabout way that sometimes or you thought about blaming yourself for it. And, you know, your brother was more than just your brother. He protected your wife, your kids, everyone. He was truly a great man and took on a lot of responsibility that was not thrust upon him that he asked to take on. Talking about the funeral, if you don't mind, if we can go a little further, because as you go on to the story of the funeral and you talk about what you want to do to these guys that did this, and then you find out later on that you weren't sure whether who who it was with all of the bad guys that you rolled up with, all the bad guys that you took out of commission, I, I thought that there was kind of a resolution to it for you. Am I, am I correct in thinking that by taking away all those bad guys, not necessarily knowing it being a faceless person, do you think that that helped out later on? Uh, and this is what I'm thinking now, not before. Revenge is not going to cool off your heart. Never. But if you do the right things and forgive, I think you will find peace. At the beginning, when they killed my brother, yeah, I want to kill everyone. Everyone I suspicious him, I have no problem to pull whatever, whatever weapons I have and kill him in one second without thinking about it. If he is women, a man, I don't give a shit. I will kill him. But after a while, I realized revenge is take me to the hate bath. Will never let me find any peace inside me. And this is one of the things I told Tush about it. I, I realized like every time when I go to the mission, I kind of cry my soul because I have to wear different skin. I have to go to the jungle. I have to go from Johnny Walker, the one who's loved, and prank his brothers and his family, bring happiness, smile, to finish other people's life. No matter other people, what do you call them? They are bad or good. You kill fucking human. You know what I mean? The things is helping us. We are professional enough. In, in the very top stress level, we never shoot for fun. We shoot to make change and to protect ourselves. So all these kind of things, I think the struggling with myself, especially like working with, and this is what other people they say, you work with our enemy, enemy of Islam against your own people. And this is not right. Because those people, they manipulate religion in both sides, and they use it against each other. I work with good people against bad people. And I saw them, those bad people, they killed my brother. They destroyed Mosul. They destroyed Iraq. And now is the militia. So if you meant those people who's cut kids' neck, they are my people. I am sorry, but I don't belong to you. I belong to my brotherhood. You know what I mean? So, so basically, is that's why me, Dush, most of the guys I know, we work very close. We don't have that severe PTSD because we don't have that guilt inside us, if that makes sense. 
Absolutely. Tush, you want to add something on to that? Yeah, I mean, I look at I'm, I'm bummed I never got to meet his brother, but I, I think his sacrifice was not in vain, you know, because when we're doing the process of trying to get Johnny out and he got to like, you know, I can sit there and go, you know, hey, he goes on all these missions with us. But uh, the fact that his brother was murdered because uh, of Johnny, you know, or uh, that was really a strong selling point for him and his family to get the visa. So, you know, I look at it like his brother gave his life so that Beta and, and the kids and, and Johnny could have a, a new start in a new new country uh, w- without his ultimate sacrifice that he gave. Uh, you know, Johnny might not be here. Uh, you know, I think that was a, you know, unfortunately the State Department and the bureaucracy wants to see shit like that to, you know, allow you know, them in the, in the country. And it was, uh, you know, so I, you know, I thank the guy every day that Johnny's here because, and, and it's, you know, in part because he gave his life, you know, for that. So that's kind of how I've always looked at it. Well, I want to ask another question, Johnny, to that. When, when, <clears throat> when you talk about that happening and then the assassination attempt on you and the threats toward your family, you're different than an American soldier at any point you can step away from this. You, you can, but you don't, you stay in the fight. So I've got to understand the mind state behind you to continue going after what seems like an impossible, uh, odds of bringing your country back together or building it up. Like you talk about at the end of the book, it's almost an impossible dream. Why do you continue at it? When all of these things happen, it's it's simple as discipline to your belief. You have to be completely believe in, in yourself by you are doing the right things, because most of the things we do in it, we don't feel the positive result right away. Like how many mission me and Tush and the other guys, thousand and thousand mission. And we save thousands and thousands of lives. But where's those lives? We don't know. The things make me face all the struggling, face the death every day, is tomorrow. I want to build better tomorrow to my kids. Maybe I didn't succeed enough because of the power of the corrupt in Iraq is bigger than me and my team. Maybe the politics in both sides, uh, they are corrupt. But what we did, we built a small foundation of a freedom to them. Maybe they don't realize it now. Maybe another 50 years, Iraq will be uh, freedom magnetic and everywhere. And I will be proud. I am simple, me and my brothers, simple piece in that. So the things me accept the, the price is tomorrow because I believe in tomorrow. Jason, I want to ask you to tie on to that. I've seen you in a lot of interviews. You talk about, was it worth it? Yeah. And you said on a day-to-day basis, it changed over there. Uh, it, yeah, it did change every day. I mean, like you get this, you're like, geez, you know, you got to separate overarching U.S. policy with uh, 
just winning your your portion of the war and you sometimes forget that i think and uh you know when like oh god like some kid from the hawaii or california national guard gets you know blown up manning a checkpoint you know or some reservist school teacher is you know dealing with people you know his soldiers getting killed day in and day out it's really frustrating like what's it you know what what's the what are we achieving here uh but then the flip side is like johnny said like you know you you take out a al-qaeda cell that's building you know suicide uh vests or or v-bids and uh you know you give some respite to uh the locals and then you feel like it is worth it you know i always my favorite part of the deployment was or that deployment was you know the california national guard so it was a conglomeration of uh uh hawaii and, and california national guardmen the charlie one one eight four uh they had one of the worst areas in baghdad man and and eldora and they were uh you know they're there for a year and they're just you know they're not like me and, and the other team guys who signed up to this for a career you know they're school teachers and mechanics and you know fill in the blank they're just americans who are activated and sent and we're not gonna and then they stick them in just a horrific area and uh you know we tried to make it a point like just go down there once a week and hit a target even if it was just our presence down there would, would throttle back the IEDs for a couple of days at least. And, you know, I always felt like if we went down there and hit a target, uh, you know, one of those kids wouldn't get carted home in a, you know, a flag draped coffin because uh, Al Qaeda was running scared for a few days or a week. And uh, if we had that kind of rhythm, we could hopefully prevent some attacks. But yeah, like it was, it was things like that. Like they're, they're that, okay, you're making things better, but, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like we won our part of it, you know. Uh, I look at, you know, the efforts we had in Baghdad, were, and then we moved out to Anbar. And, uh, you know, it was weird, like, going to El Anbar in, like, 2009 and 10, driving down Route Michigan in an unarmored pickup truck. Like, that's that was unheard of, man. Like, you couldn't go anywhere near that place without, you know, getting smashed. And, uh, in you know, 2004 and 5 and 6, and all of a sudden it's – uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk yeah, about it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. Okay, uh, let's talk about it. Nah, we just had this massive target. We uh, drove up from Baghdad. <laughs> okay, you can't Link. say we just had this massive target and it's like, oh, and that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we uh, we drove up from Baghdad for, with, uh, and to link up with the other task unit up in uh, Havania. And there was like four, four big targets in uh, Fallujah that we're going to hit. And uh, we had two of them. And the other group had two. Uh, I actually think there's two more. I think the Iraqis had a couple. And uh, the uh, and uh, so we had this giant ass convoy going down Route Michigan, and uh, like twelve Humvees and a stake, couple stake trucks, and Johnny and I are in the in the very back Humvee. And uh, let me let me let me freeze that. No, hold on, you you. You make it very uh, beautiful Hollywood picture. No. <laughs> so we are 12 Humvees. And when we look at the mobility name, they put me the last Humvees, the last one. And I never sit inside the Humvees because I cannot fucking breathe. 
and my wisdom in that, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna kill one of those motherfuckers. I will take him with me, you know what I mean? So I sit outside, the envy. So while I'm sitting, thinking like, fuck, we're going to Fallujah, and if you go to Fallujah and you're a lucky motherfucker, you're gonna lose one leg, one arm. And this is acceptable price. But now I am at the last Humvees and the fucking motherfuckers, they attack the last Humvees always. So now I'm not talking about lake and arm. I'm talking about life is like, fuck. So while I am uh, debate with myself in this topic <laughs> to show up, it's like, what the fuck? What are you doing here? He's no, oh, yeah. So he's yeah. senior chief in that time. He should be in the lead Humvees. And I saw his name. He's in the lead Humvees. He changed it and he says, where's Johnny Walker? They told him he's at the last Humvee. He says, I'm, I'm going with him. So he came and he said with me. It's like, what the fuck, man? It's too hot now, be. Something <laughs> happened. At least we lose one. Why you fucking come? I'm kind of fucking angry, you know? It was like, fuck a stupid decision between me and myself. And I saw Tush act like fucking weird, like start pulling the black shield and covering himself. Like the, uh, you're talking about the, uh, like a ceramic. Uh, no, nah, it's a ballistic a, blanket. A blast, no, uh, ballistic blanket, yeah. Johnny doesn't have quite have it right. I, I, okay, yeah, I, I all right. Back there. I, I walked back there, I was like, uh, it just like to me, it was uh, it was Johnny in the back, and then uh, we had this E5 EOD guy, and there was yeah, two yeah. of them in the back. I'm like, I'm like, this is kind of I, I, well. One, it was June, so it was hot as hell in the Humvee. So I'm like, you know what? I'd rather just get blown up and sit in this thing because I'm sweating my ass off. And uh, but I, it just to me, it didn't set well that you know, oh, let's just throw the interpreter and and uh, the EOD guy in the back Humvee. So. I walked back there and hopped in, and, but we had a, a, like a ballistic blanket and I'm like, ah, I started pulling it over us. And, uh, cause I'm like, ah, at least we'll be able to keep our body parts intact if we get hit with an ID. And, uh, Johnny's like, what's up, man? Like, and I'm like, I basically said, Hey man, uh, make sure nothing happens to me. He goes, why? He goes, <laughs> he's like, what, why? Okay, of course. And he's like, I'm just like, yeah, cause my wife's going to kick my ass if I get killed. And, uh, he just looked he'd like that was a completely foreign concept to him uh, at that point. Because, <laughs> like, my, my wife's parting shots to me was, yeah, if you get killed, I'm going to kick your ass. So, well, and let me ask you, maybe I read it wrong, but was there one point where Johnny asked you what you were doing back there and you said, we're brothers, right? We can sit together yeah. if we're brothers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that was the whole now point. that sounds very Hollywoodish to me. I like that part of the story that you both left out of it because. It yeah. shows it shows that relationship between you. I don't think you just came back there because it was hot up in the Humvee. No, I think that it, you really had uh, an issue with him being back there by himself. Yeah, completely. It was wrong. You know, I mean, I got <clears throat> I just think if you're going to lead, you got to lead by example. And if you're going to ask somebody to sit in the back Humvee, you should do it too. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's just the way it is. And yeah, Johnny's my brother. It was like. Hey, bro, you know, and uh, if something happens, it's going to happen to both of us, period. You know, it's just the way it needs to be. And he would have done the same if he was in my, you know, if the roles were reversed. So, yeah, because it is. I mean, at that point, 
you know, you spend a week together and in a war zone like that, your brother period. And, uh, at, by that point we were halfway through deployment and Johnny and I had been through thick and thin on it. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just kind of like, a tensions were high. And so, yeah, I'm not gonna, it just, yeah, I'd rather ride back there with him, man. If we're, something bad's gonna happen i'd rather be with him so johnny you have a shit-eating grin on your face right now so i want to know what you're thinking because there's something coming i know i just i just like bring back that those seconds and i'm just thinking at that time is like what the fuck is going on you know what i mean we facing death and he just think about mary joe it's something i i couldn't understand it until i came and live in this country which is is worth it to be responsible and is worth it to uh, consider your partner opinion you know what i mean yeah and and i i absolutely understand what you're saying i want to ask you though jason what made johnny so different because you've been all over the world you've worked with the seal teams forever what made him so different from everyone else that you'd work with and especially interpreters that you had worked with? Uh, he, you could just tell he was a good human being who like he, he legitimately wanted mm-hmm. to see Iraq become a better place. And, and he put his life on the line for us, you know, day in and day out. And, uh, and we just, you know, when we weren't working, we would talk and have really cool conversations or I'd go over to Johnny's place. He'd make us dinner. He'd make Kyle and I dinner and, uh, we, you know, we'd sit around and talk and eat and, uh, you know, just got to, got to know him like, like a, a good friend. And, and I don't know what it was, you know, I guess when, when I got to Iraq and was doing the turnover, uh, you know, my predecessor was giving me the rundown and everything. And he's like, look, man, Johnny is good to go trust him with your life. And I'm like, okay, Roger that. And he took me over to meet him, and I'm like, yeah, cool. This guy's rad. I, I, you know, I heard about him back in the States, and uh, we just ended off as friends. And and then you see him in work, you know, doing the job. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, seeing somebody who was ruthless to bad guys and completely compassionate to the innocent uh, is the way it should be, you know. And, and, you know, sometimes the American military falls short, and we all do. We're human. But uh, Johnny never crossed that line, and that was always really impressive to me. Like, if you're bad, you're bad. If you're good, you're good. And if you're bad, I'm going to risk my life to take you out. And if you're good, I'm going to risk my life to protect you. And that's uh, that's a great way to live your life. And so his values and my values were aligned. Uh, we developed a friendship quickly. And, uh, you know, immediately he became my brother. And, uh, yeah, it's just character matters you know i think one of the things like we added to the teams is after they accept me as part of the team is the culture wise and it's kind of education level because what i'm thinking like navy seal is the best warrior but they are not perfect i want them to be perfect which is from my uh, observation they miss the culture wise and this is where we start working and educate the guys, hey, this and that. And I think we succeed so far. I mean, me, Tushin, and all the guys, because we accepted from each other because we are family. 
Yeah, and it was different with you. Yeah, because like the other interpreters were, you know, most of them were expats, pats. So they had, uh, you know, they're Kurdish and Sunni and Christian, and they had fled Iraq and came to the states and were citizens, and and they had a different mindset, and you know, in dealing with it, it wasn't their country anymore, and they didn't care, and they're pissed that they had to leave, and and they were, their uh, moral fine line was a little bit blurred at times. Whereas Johnny, no matter what happened, you know, he had to live with the aftermath. So if we made a big mess there, you know, him and his family had to deal with that. And so Johnny approached things, in my in my opinion, uh, you know, cleaning up his side of the street, if you will, like making sure his country, you know, his neighborhoods, his his fellow citizens, you know, if they were bad, you're going to kill them. If they're good, uh, I got to protect you. I'm obligated because, you know, at some point the U.S., you know, our, our foreign policy is pretty much seduction followed by abandonment. And so we're going to pull out and, you know, the Iraqis are going to be left with this mess. And Johnny's my friend and my brother. I, you know, like, I don't want to see him, you know, stuck with a, a mess here. But he, he approached it like, hey, this is my country. I want it to be, you know, like a, you know, Americanized uh, version, of, you know, in Iraq. And uh, that that's where our, uh, there was just a different uh, mindset. And, and the other interpreters are great guys. I mean, I, you know, I liked them all uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, I talk to them still to this day. But uh, Johnny was special and Johnny was different. He had a, you know, it was, uh, you know, he, he had way more skin in the game than anybody else did. It wasn't a paycheck for him. It was, uh, ma- you know, making sure. Because, I mean, the, the paid disparity was ridiculous. You know, like what Johnny made versus what the U.S. citizens made. I mean, it was like. 100 to 1, if you will, 200 to 1 at t- sometimes. And, uh, you know, but he was risking his life aggressively more than anybody because this was his country, you know. His patriotism was ridiculous for a country that pretty much had abandoned everything, you know. But he still, but not the people didn't, you know. The people were just, you know, trying to figure out which side to go with, right. You know, it's uh, it was a big sales pitch. What Who's better, uh the Shia militias, Al Qaeda, or the U.S. You know, I don't know, uh, and that's where you get uncertainties. Well, there's a there's a bunch of stuff that comes up from you guys just saying about that. One, Johnny, I want to get to you cooking for the American soldiers because I've heard stories about that. We'll get to that in a second. The pay disparity, I also want to talk about because I had heard a story where you were drinking whiskey at one point from a bag, not even from a bottle. So I'm glad that you got a pay raise because I can't even imagine how shitty whiskey out of a bag would taste. It's like uh, moonshine. Oh. <laughs> but in, in, in uh, <laughs> a horrible way. <laughs> I remember like, see, I cannot talk shit about the back of whiskey because of the back of whiskey make me who I am now because... I'm a drunk that night because of that back of whiskey. Maybe there is bills, drug on it. I don't know. But that back of, back of whiskey make me build right decision to fill an issue, uh, to solve an issue between Iraqi women and military police. And I start working with military police. You know what I mean? So I still appreciate that back of whiskey. But thanks God I quit from all the... 
I drink almost three years now. Does it? Uh, does that bag of whiskey? Does it have any name? Does it have? I know it was made by locals, but it's it, made. It's made by by individual. It's not local or company or houses. No, someone he made it. He boiled the water. I don't know what he did, but we bought it and it's kind of like red. When we drink it, red and heavy. <laughs> it's like nasty. <laughs> It's funny, like, next day you wake up, you just shake it. There's yeah, no, I, I think you got a bad batch, Johnny. There is nothing called hangover. We don't have it for the back of whiskey. It's, it's shangover because you shake it all the day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about uh, preparing food. Now, did some people get sick because they weren't used to the the food or the style or how it was prepared. Can we talk about that a little bit? So for me, or was uh, For you, Johnny. Okay. So I don't know, but I think in, in the sniper mission, when we go, me and Johnny Hyle and the other guys, see, the thing is, like I told you, Navy SEAL community, they are professional enough. I'm not saying all of them, they are perfect. There are some of them, they are not good. You know what I mean? Which is, in any other place, but most of them, most of the guys I work with them, they want to reach to the perfection warrior. And part of that on the sniper mission, our goal is not to kill. Our goal is how we can make different in that neighbor. How can make different in our small piece by doing the right things. And to do that, you have to build a bridge between you and the community the Iraqi community. And this is one of the reasons why we all the time because we don't have that communication with the Iraqi families. So when we had the target and we took it as a sniper OP, first thing I do, I change my clothes, my camis and put civilian clothes. And I go to the market, collect money from the teams. And I go and I bought vegetable, food, meat, and we start cook to the family. We cook to the family. This is kind of short uh, bridge to win their trust and love and loyalty because you never know what is what they can do if they want to ambush us. And second thing is they can be close to us and we have purpose to watch them closely. So by doing that, Johnny Heil, eat the salad, and uh, so far we succeed. And I remember one of the missions supposedly to stay one night, and next day at the night, head back, all the family, they says, no, 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 you guys go nowhere. If you guys go anywhere, we will go back outside the house. And we start screaming and tell all the neighbor about you. So you cannot go anywhere. You have to stay with us. So we stay a couple nights, three days with them. Other people, they, uh, after we leave them, I mean, we give them money, not from the government, from the team pocket, from, not from my pocket. I don't have that money. And the guys, they just like collect money from their own pocket and we just give it to the family and we start building like good foundation and they start calling us, hey, bad guys here, bad guys there. And I think one of them, Johnny Hyle, I think he'll get some kind of diarrhea 
because he's not used to uh, to eat Iraqi food. He's redneck. He's like <laughs> white cracky trash guy. <laughs> Jason, what did you think about the food? I loved love it. it. Yeah, I loved the Iraqi food. I hate uh, the crap they'd feed us in the chow halls was uh, terrible, man. It was just a bunch of fried junk. And uh, so, like, I, I loved it when Johnny would cook for us. But uh, I uh, I love the Iraqi food. The American stuff was just garbage. So, like, when Johnny would cook for us, it was awesome. And then, uh, yeah, and, uh, well, the next couple of times over there, the uh, in Ramadi, we ate more off the economy than uh, – we had previously and that was way better you know i'd rather eat the lamb and shawarmas and kebabs and grilled tomatoes and uh onions and it was that yeah, that was fantastic i mean some of the dishes johnny cooked up for us though on in his uh, house like i wish i had the recipes man they were awesome but now i can go over to his house now and beta will cook for me so that's cool <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about you guys's first mission together i don't think it was like the um the most perfect mission, how it went down. But I think that uh, you guys learned a lot about each other from reading the book. Um, can we talk about that first mission together? Yeah, it was our very first mission. Uh, and the situation for us at the time was, uh, it was a bit goofy, right? So, you know, the way a SEAL team, a SEAL tasking in a platoon normally uh deploys and you work up together you do a year year and a half long work up you you know each other's insides and outs. you know who's who by smelling you know you can smell the air and go oh, okay so, you know so and so you know johnny over there ate beans for dinner uh you just you you're really in tune and dialed in with each other and then we got to iraq and uh due to the situation on the ground uh the task units got broken up because they were doing uh security details for the top five in the Iraqi government. They're doing a personal security detail. And that, so most of the SEALs were tied up doing that. And then, you know, as a task unit chief, I had uh, a platoon from an East Coast SEAL team that I'd never worked with before. And then uh, to backfill everybody else, you'd get onesie twosies from different platoons. We'd drive down to uh, the green zone, pick them up, uh, guys who weren't needed on a detail the next couple of days, and we'd bring them up to uh, RPC, and we would uh, go out and do missions with this pickup team, complete pickup team. And uh, the first mission was, you know, just it was completely <laughs> muddled. We, we, it was just a whole slew of people with uh, who had never worked together, and we it was a ridiculously – um, com more complex target than it should have been for the first mission. It was like five targets and it was just a, it was a train wreck to be honest. But, uh, you know, and we, so it, it, it was just, it was horrible quite frankly. And, and it was hard, like as a leader, I feel like a uh, complete failure because it, it just, I was too slow to make decisions and, uh, it was too confusing. There was just so many moving parts. I, I just really didn't know which way was up. But anyhow, like Johnny and I got connected together and uh, we, you know, the target, the, the target we were in, we secured it and uh, two guys cleared the roof 
And they came back in and said, yeah, it's all clear out here. Okay. So then Johnny and I are up on the second floor and uh, Johnny's in a room rooting through DVDs. It's like you're looking for SSE and Intel. And uh, so he's rooting through DVDs. They turn out to be all like Pakistani porno movies. And uh, so, you know, he, I'm, I'm watching him, uh, you know, he should be a real niche market there. Oh yeah. He's stuffing them in his cargo pockets and shit. (laughs) I thought this is a classified. Yeah, oh yeah, sorry. My bad. Well, it, yeah, it hasn't been 25 years. Damn it. Uh, so at, at any rate, uh, I'm standing there watching Johnny, you know, root through these DVDs, and the guy we're looking for walks off the roof and uh, and into the doorway. And, like, I immediately get my gun up on it and, you know, starting to take slack out of the trigger. And I'm trying to remember, like, what – the Arabic phrases for get your hands up. <laughs> and like, it sounds like I got a bag of wangs in my mouth, man. I'm just like, and I don't know what the Johnny's looking at me. Like what the hell, bro. And, uh, you know, this, this guy's standing there and Johnny just goes over and, and gets him cause he was closest to it. But, uh, yeah, that whole thing, that was like a, it was a mess. So there was some great lessons learned though on that one. <laughs> that it was much better after that. So, Well, do you think that, that starting off with a mission like that really kind of set the tone for you guys? Because I, one, I think that there's nowhere to go, but up from that, but two, you saw without really saying anything, him come to what needed to be done and take care of business at hand. Yeah. Johnny and I certainly our bond developed right then and there not that one. And, uh, you know, Johnny wouldn't pull any punches on what we did wrong. I mean, he had, more by that point he had more combat experience than any seal you know for the most part because he had been you know a, two or three deployments worth of uh missions with guys and so okay fine he's a iraqi interpreter but he's got more experience than all of us so it, there was you know he pulled me aside and did some coaching quite frankly what went, went wrong and what went right and then uh so you know for like johnny's and my relationship it certainly improved Improved, or it, that that put it on solid footing, and then you know, from a leadership perspective, it's like, oh, okay, you know, before any mission, we're gonna rehearse the shit out of it because we got this pickup team. You know, we're gonna, you know, make the brief. I'd rather spend five minutes on a brief and five hours doing dry walkthroughs and, and rehearse and get, you know, try to uh, get familiar with each other because we're all, you know, it's a, it's people who've never worked together before, and. Yeah, after that, it was like clockwork, you know. That So, yeah, I mean, I think we got really lucky. Had there been, uh, like, a, a troops in contact at that point during that, it would have been a complete shit show. And uh, guys would have been – it wouldn't have ended up well, I don't think. Uh, so, yeah, we certainly got lucky on that. We got a freebie, honestly, I look at it that way. And uh, the missions after that were way smoother, even with, uh, you know, the random mix of uh, frogmen we had in those – Ops. Johnny, your thoughts on that first mission? Uh, I think, I mean, I mean, the thing is with the SEAL community, when you tell anyone, hey, this is not the way it's going to be fucking legit, he's not going to be proud of them. And, oh, I am Lidl, I am Navy SEAL, I am American, I am this and that, and he's not going to listen. No, every one of them. He will listen 
because they are professional enough to learn. You know what I mean? And this is the fine edge between profilism and fucking idiots. And when we have debrief, I feel free to say whatever I feel, and I have to share it with my brothers because we are not dealing with uh, stock of money or construction or car dealers or politics. We deal with our lives. If I kept it in, for myself and next day something happened, I cannot fucking survive with guilt. And that's why when I uh, told Tush, brother, hey, this is what I think. This is what we need to do. This is communication, this and that. One, two, three, four. And hey, is your guys call. But this is what I think. And they respect my opinion because no, I came from, we are team. If we can win, we can win all of us together. We can lose, we can lose all of us together. And I think this is one of the, the best sealed skill that they listen, they are not ignorance. And that's why we don't have a lot of casualty. Uh, yeah, I think being able to to talk back and forth. Now, when you worked with other troops, did you ever have that trouble of of them not listening to you? Or because I know at one point in the book you talk about this is my city, my country, my rules that you had to tell them because they weren't listening to the cultural uh, kind of affairs, how to deal with it. Um, was it a huge problem, or could you get past it rather quickly with other troops other than the seals that you worked with? For me, honestly, I cannot judge other teams because if I work with them, I'm going to work with them for one day or two, one mission or two mission. You know what I mean? And I cannot blend in with them because they will never accept me. They have to trust me. They have this, this, this. And that's why I know only SEALs. I work with them. You know what I mean? But I know the mentality of the SEALs is different than another branch, with all my respect. I mean, every branch, he have his own skill. Like, I remember one time we uh, had big-ass mosque, the biggest mosque in Baghdad. And the plan is uh, the ranger, they can secure the fans and towers. SEALs, they can uh, clear the building inside the facility. And Delta Force, they can uh, integrate, find the jackpot. And at that time, I'm smoking like no fucking tomorrow. And the mission during the day, and this is against our fucking belief. This is fucking stupid things. And, but we did it. And while I'm talking with the chief, and it's take like 15 minutes after we clear the buildings, and there is no jackpot announced. So I told the chief, what the fuck is going on? He said, I have no idea. I told him, bro. Tell those guys, if they want, I can find the jackpot within 10 minutes. And I don't know Delta Force in that time. I have no idea. All what I know is special team. So he talked in the radio and they said, okay, send him. I went to them and I told them, hey guys, listen, with all due my respect, you guys out, you guys all, what, what do you want from me? Jackpot. I will give you jackpot, but we run the show. We do our, we take care of the fucking business. He said, okay, do it. So me and the teams, 
we bring all the males, which is almost, I don't know, 30, 40 males. And, you know, we took uh, the personal uh, IDs, money, cell phone, and we put them in the uh, SSC back. So anyway, we put, we lined them, lined, lined, lined them, all of them together, straight in one line. And I came, me and another team guy, and I told them, hey, I just came to apologize to you guys. I present the Iraqi government, and he present the American government, USA, and we have sourced, feed us with wrong information, telling us we can find C4, we can find car bombs. And you know, when you tell someone about C4 and car bombs, and he know there is nothing inside his building, he will feel safe. So I give them that feeling, and I told him, okay, I'm gonna start calling names. When I call the names, please come to me, and I will give you a gift, which is 200 bucks, and I will apologize from you, and you can go home or you stay, whatever, it's your call. And I apologize again. And I can tell from the faces, they are so happy. And that's been said, the information we have is only name, Abu Sajjad, that's it. Nothing else, no description, no phone, nothing. So I called maybe seven, eight, nine names, and I called Abu Sajjad. And he moved one step to the front, and I told him, buddy. <laughs> And I give it to them, I call them jackpot. And those guys, Delta Force, they watching us. And at the way back, I saw the team, he said, Johnny, you don't need to come with us to debrief. Okay. Whatever you guys think. Uh, like I told you, discipline. Sometimes I never think as much as the clear order, give it to me, you don't need to be with us. Roger that. Because honestly, I hate debrief. I hate to breathe. I just want to go back to my room and start fucking drinking. So I went back to my room and they said, hey, Johnny, uh, you want to go home? It's like, fuck yeah. It was not. I don't have money. He said, oh, we took care of it. So I went home for a couple of weeks with all the fucking money. And I took my family to the north of Iraq. Uh, I spent like three weeks, head back, and uh, I told him, What's going on, guys? What the fuck? This is Johnny. On the way back, Delta Force, they says we will give seven interpreter, but we need Johnny to be our term. And this is not request. This is order. He have to be with us. And that's why we told him you resign and you left the base and you go. Home. You went home. <laughs> so, again, the answer for your question, I don't have enough experience with other branch. But I know with teams like almost 1,000 mission, I never have issue to tell anyone this is right or this is wrong. From day one, when we do the CTR with TACO, with uh, Eric, with other guys, I, I bring the clothes, I give them clothes, I sit up the cars, and I am the one who is talking with public or police or anyone, they have no problem to let me do that. They don't feel like, oh, we are the best. We have to take care of our things. Do you know what I mean? No, they don't right. have that. 
Now, another crazy thing that I read in this book was, and and looking at interviews with you, Jason, and stuff, you two both have been married for a very long time, which is a, yeah, which is a very strange thing. Uh, and I'm talking in law enforcement, military, first responders. That's not something that happens all the time. Uh, I've been blessed. I've been married for 25 years being in military and law enforcement, but it doesn't happen a lot. So I got to talk to you guys about family and backing you up and, and having a wife that, that understands what you're going through and is around for you. So let's start with you, Johnny, talking about your wife and everything that she's done for you in this career. I mean, I think the most of the attention in, in, in our, in all the community in the world goes to men and the women always on the shadow. And that's why I call them the silent warrior, the silent hero, because they do everything to take care of the family, to gather the family, to keep up the family, to face the death and support the, the husband. And for me and Tush, fuck, what the fuck, what do we do? We just fucking carry weapon and fucking fight, you know? But our wives, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna talk in my part, like Beta, she have to leave, move from the house every two, three weeks, every two months, depend on the situation of that neighbor she live on. If she feel there's something suspicious, she have to move. And sometimes she moved to the village and she's city girl. And sometimes she moved to another places and she don't have weapon, she don't have pistol. And if she have, she don't know how to use it. And for me, I'm having the most advanced to strike lethal weapon in the world. And still doing my job she had nothing and she's still doing her job but the extra things she have love because the woman is passion of love and responsibility and loyalty more than us i remember Beda. she's one of the time she she escaped from Mosul because after i killed several savages and my name goes on the mosques like he's the infidel he's a traitor this and that uh, she decide without i know to move to baghdad and there is checkpoint and don't think the checkpoint like our border checkpoint are you american yes go ahead thank you no there is like fake checkpoint there is sunni checkpoint there is shia checkpoint there's government checkpoint and when they stop her she knew it, they are fake checkpoint. They pretend they are government, they are army. And she look at the kids, each one of his face, and she wish one thing. She cannot die or killed, whatever, before them. And for me, this is the extreme level of the love and the belief of the path her husband choose for them. So, man, I don't know, women is, our women is extraordinarily brave, 
and special. And I think that's why we are who we are now, not because of us, but because of them. Let me ask you, Jason, before you talk about your family, Johnny, I want to ask about that. You talk about in the book when she does escape, she finally makes it to Baghdad. She calls you and tells you, I'm here. You're like, what are you talking about? And she said she was there in Baghdad with you and that you, I don't want to say you got angry, but you were uh, very stressed out about it. Um, is, is anger the right word? I don't know. So yeah, anger or mad or whatever you call it, because you have to understand our nature. Me and the team guys, we go by order. We go by to care of all the details because this is who we are. Like if we go to the fucking ready room, we have to check our M4, magazine, round, pistol, communication, radio, because any small mistake is going to cost life. So this is goes to the civilian life too because we are in the war too. So I get mad at my wife because without any plan, we shared me and her and make the team to have cure for something. She did it by herself. She is right. Absolutely, she's right because the result, she's safe. But from me, I didn't accept it because until now, I'm thinking about everything does have to go by order and details. So how long does it take you to realize that what she did is the right thing to do? Because now, I mean, now you can sit back and look at it from a distance and say, yeah, that was absolutely the right thing. There was things going on there that she needed to get away from. How long does it take you in life to step away and get that perspective on it? A few days. When I head back from the base on Bayab, to my house, which is 10 minutes to drive, and sit with them and 80% save, I feel she made it right and I'm wrong. Because sometimes not everything have to go by book. Not everything have to be perfect. Sometimes you have just to do it. Do you tell her that? Of course. How does she take that news that you say, yeah, you were right? I'll keep it to myself. Okay. <laughs> she used it. She used it against me every time. I told you. You never believed. I told you. Like, okay. All right, Touche, let's talk about you. You, numerous deployments, a very busy job where you're away from, your wife holds it down. How do you keep the marriage together for this long? What is it special about your wife that has held her around this long and embraced this lifestyle? First, she's really independent, and I think I covered that, but I think we had an understanding. And like, hey, when, when, you're, when you have to work, uh, be at work, and when you're home, be present and be at home. And there's times when you can't do that, you know, particularly later on in my career where the phone rings at random times and you got to go into work and deal with a bad situation. But, uh, you know, for the most part, when, you know, I, Hey, I'm home from work. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be present with the family, hanging out with the kids, which, you know, I love to do anyway. I mean, being a dad is the greatest job on earth. And, uh, 
you know, and then make sure she gets a break and has time to do the things she wants to do. And uh, just, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I could be much better at communicating, but uh, she'll let me know when I'm not communicating. Right. So it works out. Okay. And, uh, you know, you just, you just, you kind of work through it. You know, I don't, it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think early on before we had kids, it was more challenging than when we did have kids. Cause now you have a common, uh, you know, the most important thing in your life is raising two or in my case two, but raising good human beings and, uh, you know, nothing, both of us are the same mindset that nothing we're going to do is going to jeopardize, uh, raising our kids the best way, best to the best of our ability. And, uh, yeah. And now that they're grown up and all that, it's, uh, you know, we're able to hang out a little bit more. That's interesting too. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it's, it's almost kind of, uh, re meeting each other again after all these years. Um, we're right now. I, I I always say I have three daughters, and we're got two teenagers, and one that's going to be a teenager soon enough. But it's a it's a lot. Um, and so when you hear when you hear stories like Johnny's stories like yours, and and it survived through so much stuff, through so much turmoil, through so many deployments and things like that, it's a it's a very good story to hear because you don't get to hear it too often. Unfortunately, you don't get to hear it too often in the fields that we're in, whether that be law enforcement, military, first responders, things like that. What I wanted to talk about kind of last to wrap up our discussion is the process that it took that Jason, that you helped Johnny get here. Uh, and it was a 13 year process to make him a United States citizen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that's insane. So can we start with, and I want to hear from both of you, your thoughts on it, the headaches that you went through to do it, but how it started. Uh, and then I want to hear a couple years into it, what your thoughts are, if you think it's ever going to happen and then how it ended up. And as we all know, like you just showed Johnny with your granddaughter and everything, uh, this is kind of the legacy that made all of this worth it. So let's talk about how it got started, how the idea came up and then the process that we went through to get to where we're at. Yeah, we were, uh, well, it was in Baghdad. I think it was like May or yeah, May or June. And uh, we had some NCIS guys working with us and their interpreter had been uh, targeted. And so they moved him to uh, Egypt and, and the process. And, you know, and, and talking to one of the guys, he's like, yeah, there's a program where you can get, uh, interpreters who li whose lives are in danger visas to uh to the u.s and so i remember uh I'm like oh cool so i hit up johnny I'm like hey man do you want to uh you ever think about coming to the u.s and uh he looked at me he's like pissed man he's like bro this is my country man i'm like okay fair enough but uh and i was like that's cool i mean i, I figured he'd say that you know because he was just in the he was in the heat of it and you know, he, he really had this vision for a, like a, you know, democratic republic in Iraq, if you will. And uh, so I was like, yeah, cool, man. That's awesome. You know, if we had a few more Johnny Walkers, we'd be out of here pretty soon. Uh, but, okay, cool. It's uh, He said no. And I, I just said, hey, man, that offer is always open. And, and then it came time, end of October, uh, getting ready to head back home. And uh, Johnny came out to the tarmac with us. And I'm like, hey, brother, uh, you sure you don't want me to try to get you out of 
here and he's like draw oh, it's my country i'm like all right fair enough uh you know at least email me every week or give me a text and let me know you're okay and if you change your mind hit me up and uh you know so with that gave him a big bro hug and uh but i remember looking at him going fuck i'm never gonna see him again uh and so i was like no oh, man it's heavy uh three months later I'm, I'm back at home you know in my regular life grind uh you know going to run into work and coming home hang with the kids going surfing and uh middle of january uh 2006 i get a phone call I'm standing in my kitchen and the phone rings and i got my work phone i look down at the number i'm like fuck uh it's it's an one of the voice over internet protocol uh lines that we used in iraq and i'm like okay running through my mind it, it's like this is not good uh you know so if, if i'm getting a call from iraq it's because somebody close to me is dead and it's probably johnny or my buddy hans or somebody like that and uh so i'm making a beeline out the front door because the kids are on the couch with my wife and you know i just don't want to answer the phone in front of them because it's going to be bad news so i'm in the front yard and uh it's the commanding officer from uh seal team one and then my heart really sinks because you know it's the commanding officer the command master if they give the bad news and uh it's like hey touche whiz i'm like hey what's up sir and he's like hey uh he just goes things got really bad for johnny and his family and he mentioned that you know you said you'd work on getting them out and i'm like yeah totally and uh you know we had a brief conversation and then hung up the phone and uh i remember my wife standing at the front door she's like, what was that and uh, i'm like well you remember you know johnny walker the interpreter i was you know friends with and she's like we need to get him out of iraq and uh she's like how the hell are you gonna do that and i'm like yeah i had no idea um but i did yeah and uh so i just i, I started asking around a bit and uh the, the like the legal gal at uh at one of the commands said let me know that there was this uh immigration attorney who did pro bono work on the main base navy base 32nd street in san diego every thursday you know so i put on a good uniform got a good haircut and what little documentation and information i had on the visa program i took with me and i got the audience with them and i started explaining the situation and i was I think I was a little animated while I was talking to him because he was getting animated and uh, he was really excited and he's like, this is awesome. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to dive into this. And, you know, the lawyer's name was George Sabga Jr. And, and uh, man, like what a, what a just incredible freaking being, man. And, uh, you know, he worked on it with, uh, he kind of took point, but, you know, the process itself, you know, I was kind of the, point of it with george but like every man like every seal team that deployed over to iraq had a part in this you know like and it was every six months there was a new team going in and you know i i would be the continuity back here but uh you know the bodies that were over there you'd have to send paperwork into them and you know they would fill it out and send it back and we'd send it off to you know dhs or uh state department or whatever and they would sit on it for weeks or months and, uh, and then they'd fire back and, you know, we didn't cross this eyes and dot this or dot this eye across this T and fill it back out. Uh, we weren't really sure what Johnny's birthday was. <laughs> so I think we just, you know, and, and we screwed that up. It was different a few times, uh, you know, spelling of Arabic names and translating it from Arabic to English. You know, there's a dozen ways to spell a matey uh, or 
Ahmadi or Obadi or, you know, like, okay, let's just pick a birthday, pick some spelling, and uh, at least keep that consistent. And, uh, yeah, it's just a long – We it, it was really amazing, like, the, the people we had helping out. We had really high-ranking congressional staffers. Uh, you know, we, we, we strategically put leadership in places in D.C. And, you know, like, we have, you know, there'll be SEALs, junior – or uh, mid-grade officers on the HASP, House Armed Services Committee, Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, there'll be somebody in the, you know – a couple guys on the National Security Council, and we'd tap into them, and they could help unlock, you know, uh, break log jams a bit, or get uh, high-ranking staffers, you know, for whatever congressman or woman to uh, help move it forward. But even with that kind of uh, firepower helping out, I mean, the process took like three and a half years from start to to finish to get them over, and it's just it's it's absolutely preposterous. I mean, I don't know how much more a guy and his family have to sacrifice. You know, you can't, you can't ask for a better candidate for citizenship in the U S and, you know, it's taken three and a half. I mean, we got to the point where it's like, fuck it, let's just smuggle them in across the border. You know, they, they obviously don't give a shit about that. So, you know, let's just bring Johnny in that way and beg for forgiveness. And we were going to, but we were actually going to try to smuggle him in on, uh, you know, we like Obama got elected and, you know, one of his campaign pledges was to pull out of Iraq. And so we're like, well, we're seeing the writing on the wall. Like, we might be out of here this end of this deployment. So uh, a buddy of mine, Johnny's, uh, Steve, another Steve, uh, we kind of, like, got on uh, a non-government line and, like, hey, bro, like, if when you guys redeploy, you know, we might just consider throwing the family uh, in one of the shipping containers on the plane. You know, it's a couple day flight. They, they'll make it. Just cut some ventilation and give food and water and just smuggle them in the country. I mean, it's better to do that, you know, than abandon them. And, uh, you know, luckily that never happened. We uh, got word right before they were going to redeploy that it was good. But, yeah, it was a it's uh, it was a great testament to how fucked up our bureaucracy is, period. You know, government people, employees in government don't give a shit about the average person. They just care about doing their nine to five. I mean, I'm jaded and bitter, but how many, I, I don't know, you know, because of the success we have with Johnny, you know, I, I've been pinged a bunch of times for people to try to help. And like, it's just a helpless feeling, man. Like the government does not care about people, period. They can give you lip service, but they, they were leaving, they're ready to leave Johnny hanging out to dry. It just took, we just happened to have a ton of firepower to get him through. And, uh, you know, there's so many more interpreters that are hopefully they're alive, but it's, it's a real struggle, man. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's completely anti-American that bureaucracy, the way they treat people who sacrificed everything for this country. They're not even citizens. It's, uh, sorry, that's a little bit of a soapbox and, a, you know, philosophical rant, but, uh, it really rubbed me the wrong way. It, it definitely, uh, changed some of my political views. Yeah, I know. And, and I understand. I, I want to ask you kind of a hypothetical question. Then, Johnny, I want to talk to you about this whole process. You say that it's broken. You say that, that there's a lot of bureaucracy and maybe there's not an answer to it. But if you can, how do we fix it? Hold, I mean, hold the government employees accountable like you can't get fired. You know, I mean, I, I, and I witnessed it 
in my, you know, later on in my career in, in NSW and, and, and we probably had some of the better government employees, but, you know, 10% will go above and beyond and really have great character and will do it, bend over backwards to help and believe in what you're doing wholeheartedly. You know, another 40 to 50%, you know, do what they're supposed to do and, and uh, not nothing much more. Uh, but then there's like, you know, 40% that don't give a shit. I mean, they're not, they can't get fired, you know? They're, they're going to keep getting a paycheck whether they do their job or not. I mean, it's like pulling teeth. To, so there's, there's no accountability in the government at all. Uh, there's no common sense. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's really frustrating. So, I, you know, I, I think if you just, just hold people accountable, like, man, do your job, period. And if you're not going to do it, you know, go find another job. But would never do that. You lose votes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> So, Johnny, let's talk about you talk about in the book when you get on that freedom bird, uh, you're headed to the airport, you're taken there, you get on, you get on the plane, you think back to another mission that you did where you actually took someone off a plane. You're thinking the whole time, shit, is this going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Talk to me about what's going through your mind, what's going through your body. How are you feeling when all this is happening at the very end? You're, you know, five steps away from being in the United States. So before I respond to your question, I uh, just want to mention that when uh, Steve Wozowski called Tush, uh, the reason why I changed my mind is one time I went back to my house from Baghdad to Mosul, and I look at to my family. I'm sitting in my room with my family, and I have my... Uh, AK-47, a grenade, whatever, and I'm drinking. And I told Beda, my wife, I told her, hey, can you bring the kids? She brought them and she, we just talk. And I look at to them, they have no life. And the, you know, they are kids. They have no, they have no reason to have this kind of shitty life. Yeah, my country, I owe, my country but I pay to my country more than my country pay me. All my life I didn't have piece of land. I didn't have salary. I, I have nothing from the government or from my country. And I pay blood. I pay fucking from my heart and my brain and my family. So anyway, so it was like, you know, sometime you saw something is not part of what are you looking for? But it's kind of open your eyes about something. So when I look at my kids, it's like, you know what? I think I did more than anyone can did to his country. So now I have to pay for my kids. I'm done. And this is where I told the Steve Wozowski brother, I need to move. So anyway, he called to Shand. Well, let, let me insert right there real quick, Johnny. Um, okay. At a certain point, I noticed in the book that you said, I'm ready to go home and not Iraq. I'm ready to yeah. go home to the United I mean, States. I mean, what the definition of home? If I, may, I, if, may I ask you, what the, what's, what's your description of home? I, I guess home would be 
where your family's at, where your uh, life is at. That's where all life comes from. You know, they say like uh, a house is uh, something like a house is made uh, is made from brick and stone. A home is made from love. Um, So that's what I would have to say is it's where your center is. That's your home. So half of my tribe and my family killed by my own people. They tried to kill me several times, but I killed them. Uh, destroyed my memories. Killed my brothers. Hunting my kids. At the same time, I'm doing what I'm doing, facing death every day. My family, they cannot brag about me. My kids, they cannot say, Dad, he's doing this and that. If they go anywhere, they cannot mention my name. They have to live with shame. And this is where the home definition is, is, is change. My home is where I can find roof to cover my kids, when I can find food, when I can find respect, when I can find dignity. I didn't find any of those in Iraq. I found it. In the United States, through my brothers, through Touche, through everyone, Steve, Taco, Chris, all the guys. Before I moved to the United States, I live in the United States through those guys. So this is why I said, United States is my home, and until now is my home. And if this country under attack from any country, if it's fucking under attack from holy Muslim country, Saudi Arabia, I don't give a shit to fucking kill them or fucking fight them. Because he give me everything I need as a human. So anyway, hopefully I answer your question, brother. No, yeah, I think you absolutely did. But it, it makes me think when you said that, that it's given you so much. And you look at the current state of the United States right now and the world in general, People continue saying the United States is bad, that we have so many problems, that we have... When you hear something like that and coming from where you came from, it's got to get into you and bother the shit out of you when you hear stuff like that. It's bothered me and also it's not bothered me. Okay. It's bothered me because this is not right things. Still, there is thousands and thousands positive things in this country. And to she know. Now I'm not saying that because I am rich, I have palace. No, I'm fucking working my ass off every day to support my family. You know what I mean? But still, there's thousands and thousands amazing, wonderful freedom things in this country. You know what I mean? It's not bothered me because those people who are saying it, they don't know better what they have. And they manipulate the people. They, they deal with us as a sheep, and they just want to brainwash us to lose faith in this nation. And this is never going to happen. Like Tushin mentioned, the government is fucked up in all the levels. Look at to the Gaza price. Look at to the houses. Look at to the rent. Name it. thousand things. Look at to the corrupt and fucking welfare assistant, Section 8. Name it. Immigration system, name it. All this effect, but look at the people. You still have fucking Beishrit, amazing 
people love this country to death, white, black, Asian, name it. So the good sign for this nation to continue is the people. So we are good. The bad sign is the government. The solution, I don't know. Maybe we just start vote for better person, not Democrat or Republican. Because both sides, now they take us hard right and hard left, and they don't give a <laughs> shit about this country. I agree with you there. Tush, you want to add anything on to that? <laughs> nah, it's just this, like Johnny's story, man, is, uh, you know, like I, I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, Johnny's Sunni, Beta Shia. Uh, you know, they've been at the, those two sects have been at odds, you know, since 680 AD. You know, people helping Johnny get over here were, you know, black, white, uh, Hispanic, Islander, Asian, you know, Jewish, Buddhist, Christian, atheist, agnostic. And, uh, yeah, nobody gave a shit about any of those stupid ass labels. You know, it's like Johnny's a good person. Uh, he paid his dues and we'll do whatever we can. And that's what that's what this country was founded on. Don't don't judge by these stupid stereotypes we just seem enamored to label people with today, you know, like you're either this or that. And it's like, no, you're, what you should be is you're either a good person or you're not. And if you're a good person, uh, I think most people in this, in this country will to help you out regardless of whatever dumb label they put on you. And, uh, you know, it's just, we got to stop doing that. Right. If you, if somebody's good and needs help, help them period. Uh, even if they're bad, they need help, help them. But, you know, quit. Uh, ah, they're just the whole government and media and, you know, it's just dividing us. And it's, it's completely asinine. I mean, it's a story that, you know, no white kid who's wearing his Antifa badge uh, could possibly understand. But, uh, you know, maybe they need to listen to it and grasp it and go, hey, this is what this is what real humanity is about. This is what loving your neighbor is about. This is what doing the right thing is about not throwing a brick at some reporter you don't like. It's, uh, you know, I I mean, I think, but I think most Americans are waking up to that BS. And, uh, you know, I just love to see Johnny's story get out there. Like I said, in many ways, I think it's antidote. Yeah. I I think that's a a great way to end it. Like you said, I would love to see a movie. Is there any, any talk of a movie? Yeah, there always seems to be, but we never, never see it's a resolution. Yeah, well, I, I would love to see it. Johnny, who would play you? Oh, what do you think? No matter which one is going to be way better looking than me. <laughs> Touche, who plays well, you? Play himself. Oh, God. He's silly I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But the question is, who's yeah, going to play sure. Johnny Heil? <laughs> Peter Dinklage, uh, Tyrion Lannister, oh. play Heil. okay yeah i don't know how that would work out all right let's talk about where everyone can find you where we can find this awesome book uh because i i'm just like you touche i want to get this story out there man it is an amazing amazing fucking story and more people need to hear it so johnny where can people find you i mean they can find it in uh, the book in amazon uh, social media and and one thing i just want to add it i'm not going to brag about my book is not my book, it's everyone's book. It's American dream. I mean, if you look at it, 
from day one, we bring that we saw that journey with tears and severing and happiness and loyalty and name it. We did mistake, we did plenty mistake. We learn, yes, we learn. Did we become who, who we are right now as good a human? Uh, we hope so. But I know there is one thing inside me. This country is still legit country. This country is still the dream of billion, not million, billion people who have believed on it. No matter how much politic or anti-American, they want to destroy the picture of United States, they want to burn the flag, they want to do whatever, they cannot. Because this is built through reality. This is built through every day, every second people believe on it as a hope. I wish before I leave this world, we can have people celebrate together, raise the American flag and listen to the American anthem with fucking happiness and joy on the eyes. Well, uh, you know, I, it, it's amazing every time I hear how much you love this country, Johnny, uh, because you don't hear that sometimes from people that have been born here, raised here, and it's just awesome to hear every time you say it. So can they find you anywhere on social media? Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, code name Johnny Walker. Okay. Touche, where can people find you? Uh, I guess uh, Instagram, about it, or LinkedIn. It's just uh, Touche Mosh is my name on there. It's mostly surfing shit, though. <laughs> Okay. So, I, I looked at it. Plus you got uh sandwiches on there. You got corned beef sandwiches yeah. and stuff. So Yeah, Zingerman's deli in Arbor. It's good to go. Guys, I can't thank you enough for being on the show, especially uh, you know, you you guys coming here and, and telling your story again. You made uh big efforts to get here with the limited cell capability. Johnny, uh you took time out from your family to be here. So I can't tell you guys how much i appreciate it how much i love this uh book and more people need to get out there and read it uh know it you can get it on audio version and by the way johnny the guy that voices your audio book is fantastic i i hear him and it's like fuck is that me yeah it's awesome yeah, it's, i love so it he did, he did an awesome job yeah so, uh, guys, get out there and get it. Codename Johnny Walker. You, you can get it anywhere uh, that you can find books being sold. If you guys want more of me, you know you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. Now, your one-stop shop for the show, dtdpodcast.net. It's got audio, video, pictures of Johnny, pictures of Touche pictures of their career, what they were doing, where you can find the book, and all their links. Don't forget to go there, dtdpodcast.net. Make sure that you stop by our sponsors, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. You know I say it every week. Police Coffee is a police officer-owned business. It's dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee some of the best you'll find. 
but it also helps serve an important cause. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Make sure you stop by policecoffee.com. You put in the code DJK10, it'll get you 10% off your order. And good news, everybody. It's fall. Everyone's into fucking pumpkin spice, and it's out now from policecoffee.com. So make sure you stop by there and check it out. Guys, that's going to be the show for this week. That's Jason. That's Johnny. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We'll see you later. We're out. <laughs>